Hi, and welcome to Your Own Podcast. I'm Dr. Melanie Barham, the coordinator for the Ontario Animal Health Network. And today we're joined by Dr. Michelle Evison, an internal medicine specialist and also an associate professor of small animal internal medicine at the Atlantic Veterinary College at the University of PEI. Thanks for joining us, Michelle. Thanks, Melanie. I'm happy to be here once again. So today we're going to be doing a tick update um, because ticks are an incredibly hot topic every time we survey our companion animal practitioners on the Owen Network. Um, And it seems like we haven't really had a break in Ontario from ticks, so we thought it would be a good time to just do an update as we get into um, the season when most practitioners are seeing um, seeing their patients um, for their heartworm and for their vaccine visits and annual physical exams. So, um, Michelle, do you want to just quickly share with us which diseases we see in uh, Canada, specifically Ontario, since this is an Ontario podcast, that are tick-borne, other than, you know, we know about Lyme disease, but other than Lyme disease? Sure. It's a, it's a great question, and, and it's certainly one that I've been getting a lot, and I always put the caveat out there that I am not a tick researcher, so I defer to the parasol- parasitologists in, in terms of what ticks are actually seeing and levels of, because they have access to information more than I do. But in terms of tick-borne diseases other than that caused by Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease, um, I think that really kind of gets down to are we talking about dogs or are we talking about other species? And because of what I do, I'm just going to stick to dogs. So other diseases that we are seeing in Canada or that veterinarians are seeing in Canada and that we know are here are ones that are carried by the ticks that we know we have. So Ixodes scapularis and probably the most common one that we're seeing in Canada, specifically Ontario in dogs, is anaplasma. So anaplasma phagocytophyllum and So that one is one that I know is here by virtue of it being carried by the Ixodes scapularis ticks. Um, And also because that's what general practitioners in Ontario have told me that they have diagnosed. So we know that's that's here in Ontario. I've also had some anecdotal reports from practitioners that they've seen uh, cases of cytoxazine felis in cats. Um, Mm. And that one's not supposed to be here because, of course, that's carried by the Amblyomma americanum tick which we know we've had some reports of that being in Canada, in Ontario, as well as out here in Atlantic Canada, but it's not a tick that we consider to be established. Um, So saying, I know that I've certainly talked to practitioners that have made that diagnosis, and so (laughs) that appears to be here as well. And that's the lone star tick, correct? Yes, it is. It gets a bit confusing, doesn't it, because we, we tend to mix the names around and get away from the actual scientific name, and, and I think you're absolutely right. It's important to make sure that we're all on the same page with respect to what we're talking about and, and also what pathogen can be carried by these ticks. Yeah. Um, so those are kind of the major two that you've noted in Ontario or that you know are, are in, in Ontario. And, and of those, again, the, by far the one that would be the biggest. And, and even so saying, you know, as I always do when I give talks like that, caveat on common, right? Because this is not something that like obesity in dogs where we're seeing 40 to 60% of them come in that are overweight um, to a general practice. This is, this is not common. And I, and I would even go a step further than that and say that Lyme disease, clinical Lyme disease, is still not what I would consider to be common. Um, right. but, but certainly if 
if there's things that we as practitioners should be thinking about, then anaplasma phagocytophyllum would be something that would be on my list of, of something to kind of keep an eye on. If you're in one of these Lyme disease risk areas where you have a high population of Ixodes scapularis, because we do know that they're also co-carrying anaplasma phagocytophyllum along with Borrelia burgdorferi sometimes. Gotcha. Okay, great. Um, Okay, so what diseases should Ontario vets be aware of that haven't come to Canada yet but might be found in the northern U.S.? Yeah, and that, and that's a great question, and, and that's kind of what I want to know too. So we we know that just like us um, in the northern U.S., specifically the northeastern U.S., they have populations of dermacenter variabilis, just like mm-hmm. we do. Um, and so pathogens that are carried by that particular tick are things like rickettsia rickettsii, um, mm-hmm. plague, anaplasma marginale, and, and also tick paralysis, which is not specific to a pathogen but can occur after a bite, um, as well as, and this has been debated a bit depending on who you're talking to, um, Ehrlichia canis. So we do know that those ticks are in the northern U.S. and they're also in Canada. Um, We also know that based on mapping from CDC in the U.S. that Rhyphocephalus sanguineus, the brown dog tick, is also in the U.S. and is starting to, we think, move northward. Um, And that tick can carry a host of diseases. And, and then, you know, and, and I think we'll probably jump to this one, but for me, probably the f- most frightening of the ticks that are headed our way and that are present based on CDC maps in the northern U.S. and, and coming closer to us in Canada all the time is, is again, the Lone Star Tick, Amblyoma americanum, and, and diseases that that, so one, that tick is kind of scary because unlike other ticks that are sort of more opportunistic and will kind of drop on a warm-blooded host as they move by, these ticks will actually run towards you. Um, so, oh. <laughs> yeah, so a bit of a high freakout factor with these guys because they are um, <laughs> um, kind of a bit of an eek um, <laughs> in terms of their behavior and, and also the pathogens that they carry are things like ehrlichiosis, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, as I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Cytoxazune felis, um, and then in humans there can be this oddball red meat allergy or alpha-gal syndrome along with southern tick-associated rash illness. And again, those are in people, not in dogs, and, and I'm not an MD by any means, nor would I want that job. Yeah. Yeah, there's a reason we chose animals, because people yep. are gross. Yep. <laughs> 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 However, um, our patients do come with two legs, which, which we rely sure. on. And it's important to get, get this information for us as veterinarians because this is what our clients often want to talk about. And, and the reality yeah. is they're often more comfortable talking about us because we spend a lot of time talking about tick prevention. Yes, for sure. So what diseases should be on our radar for tick-borne disease depending on travel history? I know certainly with the, um, it's come into question a lot when we've had, um, you know, recently with the canine influenza outbreak in Ontario with the travel history of dogs or dogs being imported from, from different places. Um, so do you have any comments on that for tick, on the topic of tick-borne disease? 
Yeah, absolutely. And and I mean, it's so I, you, I I couldn't agree with you more. Getting that have you traveled history is just so important when we're trying to get things on or off our differential list for an ill dog. Um, so again, probably the two big picks there that I would be worried about are things if for for owners that are traveling. And I'm going to have to you know I, I can't cover this globally, and so I'll just have to speak to Canadians that are headed southwards specifically towards the southern or central U.S. So ticks there that I'd be worried about are, are again, Amblyomma americanum, the Lone Star tick, um, which can carry the diseases that I mentioned, um, such as Rocky Mountain spotted fever, ehrlichiosis, and in cats, because it's not just all about the dogs, although it feels sometimes, but, but cats can get sick too when they have ticks on them, and Cytoxazune felis with Amblyomma americanum is probably the big one there, which can have a really quite dastardly outcome, especially if it's not on your list to think about. And then again, Rhyphocephalus sanguineus is, is a lot more common in the southern to central U.S. than we see in Canada, although it does, again, like all these guys, look like it's moving northward. Okay, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, I think that covers it pretty comprehensively. So the other thing that we wanted to ask was a, a concern voiced by practitioners is that they worry they may be missing a tick-borne disease if they're only doing a SNAP for Lyme or the C6 uh, test. But no one really wants to run up a big bill for random tick-borne disease testing. So what other hallmarks of tick-borne disease should vets be looking for, and when should they be thinking about pursuing that additional, more expensive testing? Yeah, and, and great question, and in fact, it's about 30 questions boiled into one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is fair, right? I mean, this, this is, we all want this information because we're all, and I am too, faced with pet owners, and then I'm also additionally harassed in a good way by my residents and my interns and other house officers and students here about what should we be thinking about, what should we com be communicating to clients, and, and also, you know, I don't want a big bill either for my dog, and I, and I think, again, and that falls into a couple different categories, and one of which are, are we talking about screening dogs, or are we talking about is this a sick dog or cat? And if so, what should I be thinking about? And those are two pretty different things. And, and last time I was on, we, we spent probably more time than you wanted chatting about that with, with respect to Borrelia burgdorferi and what a seropositive or a positive test result actually means, right? Yeah, and if people haven't checked that out, then it's a really good, you know, it's a good thing to, it's a good, really good comprehensive review, so. Yeah, so so I think, you know, for me, if you think about what that test, and it, you talked about the SNAP test, and so that's the SNAP40X test that IDEX produces, um, that SNAP40X Plus, and, and that is a, a test that m many practitioners are using. And so that test actually will assess for heartworm, so diraflaria imidis, which is often why it's being used as an annual test. Um, and it will also look at anaplasma species, so it includes phagocytophyllum as well as platys, but we just don't really think we have platys in Canada. And so when it's positive, again, we're thinking more about anaplasma phagocytophyllum. Um, and that test also assesses for Ehrlichia species as well. Um, and so if you're running that 40X test, you're looking, in essence, for anaplasma or Ehrlichia also. So you'll pick that up most of the time if that's what you've got present, unless you, of course, have some issues with the test itself. Um, you're right, though. The C6 
next test is specific for Borrelia burgdorferi because that test is used to take that positive that we got on the SNAP test and actually quantify it or give us a number for the antibody response in that specific dog. So absolutely, if you're just running a C6, you're not looking for anything else beyond Borrelia burgdorferi or in a patient that has clinical signs consistent with it, Lyme disease. Um, and I think for us, on a practical standpoint, it's exactly that, is what do we think is most likely in our area, and is the dog or cat in front of me sick or not? So you could make an argument that if you don't have a sick patient, what are you testing? anyway, right? right? Um, on the other hand, there is some value, I think, to using dogs as sentinels for diseases that might be in the area, although I'd have trouble justifying that to an owner um, if it wasn't part of my annual heartworm screening. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, so, so I think to kind of get to the next part of this is what should we be looking for? So when should we have a tick-borne disease on our radar? Because that's, that's kind of how I want to think about it, right? So what's tough about tick-borne disease is that no one that is going to actually listen to this is going to love my answer now because it's vague, 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 right? And, and I'm used to that because I've been an internist for a long time and I'm never popular because I'd love to give a top five or a quick, you, if you see this, you should do this, but that's just not the way things roll when we're talking about tick-borne disease because these pathogens affect the whole system. And so they can present with multi-system disease, which classically is that ain't doing right, lethargy, not wanting to eat, um, sometimes the presence of fever. So again, all of these things look a lot the same. Right? So Borrelia burgdorferi Lyme disease can look a lot like anaplasmosis, although there's sometimes some twists and turns with anaplasmosis because it can come along with thrombocytopenia as well as muscle pain as well as petechiation um, that will sometimes kind of tow us in that direction if we weren't already thinking about it. So I guess, you know, being practical for me, is it sick or is it not sick? Um, and if it's sick and sort of has that multi-system presentation and I know that that dog has a travel history um, or I live in an area where Lyme disease is higher risk or endemic, then I would also be thinking about anaplasmosis in that particular patient. And I might be thinking, if I got a positive on my SNAP, about quantifying that with a titer um, or a PCR. Mm -hmm. okay, and I don't know, does that help? That was really long-winded, and, and, <laughs> and I do try to think, although it doesn't seem so, but it really is pretty tough to give a, I should do this in this specific scenario, because they just don't present like that. Well, yeah, it can be very vague, can't it? And that's one of the yeah. challenging things about the presentation. So, yeah. no, I think that's great. Um, and to get, you know, and it's, it's also kind of comforting in a way to know yeah. that even the specialists sometimes have, a, you know, are sometimes at a bit of a loss to come up with a hard and fast rule. Oh, absolutely, and, and I think that's, again, why I started off early with the management of expectations and often disappointed because, you know, <laughs> my long-standing joke about things like the Lyme disease consensus is that it's really a lack of consensus, and, and to be fair, you know, there's a lot of brilliant people that are working on putting consensus statements like that together as well as consensus statements that have come out and passed for management of anaplasmosis 
ehrlichiosis and ehrlichiosis um, by ACVIM, and, and we just don't have the studies. Um, and, and again, in an area like Canada where these diseases are emerging because tick populations are increasing and these ticks are carrying these pathogens, um, we just really, really need the studies so that we can provide these sorts of answers so that practitioners can stand across the table from a pet owner and feel confident about what they're saying. And, and I don't think anybody can do that right now, regardless of how many letters they have behind their name or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, okay, so on that note of that consensus statement, we can certainly post a link to that. And if you're listening and you're a practitioner, um, feel free to follow our social media because we are we post stuff from ProMed. So if there's reports of tick-borne disease or other infectious disease that is close by and considered possibly an emerging thing or a concern for Canadian practitioners, we do post it on our website and there or on social media. So and then if you're not a social media person, we do post a, a weekly a weekly summary of that. We call it our disease surveillance scan. And it's posted on our website. So if you were interested in keeping up to date on that, then feel free to do feel free to follow us or to take a look at our website. We don't send them out weekly because that would probably get annoying for people. Um, and it's, we're already bombarded with our inboxes, but um, but feel free to find us and, and share any articles you find. Um, did you have anything else you wanted to add to that, um, Michelle, or any other good resources that people could look at? Uh, thanks for bringing that up, Melanie. And, and I think for me, one, number one, just thanks for having me on the show because I, I really do understand how hard it is um, with a lot of these diseases and how scary they can be and, and how uncomfortable we can all feel with these kinds of questions from our owners. Um, so again, I just want to emphasize that we're all in it together and, and that hopefully if we keep trying to churn out some of these studies, we'll, we'll get some answers to some of these questions. Um, Great resources that are out there are you guys, actually. You guys have quite a lot of lovely resources, um, podcasts like this, as well as some resource documents. Um, there are also for people that are interested in maps of where ticks are or where test positive dogs or cats may be. Um, CDC has some lovely tick maps, the ones that I was talking about today. Unfortunately, those are just for the U.S., but, but hopefully Canada will follow suit. And if you look at where that border stops, um, I think as Canadians we know that <laughs> it doesn't keep out the ticks, but we can kind of sort of see where they're coming, as well as the CAPC, the Companion Animal Parasit Group, has some lovely maps, which actually do now include Canada. Um, so thanks to the work of Scott Stevenson and some of the other folks that are on the Canadian representation of that group. So, so those are some great resources also. And, and then, of course, Dr. Scott Weiss's Worms and Germs blog can also provide a lot of really helpful information for our owners as well as us as veterinarians. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much for joining us, Michelle. That was fantastic. My pleasure. Take care, Millie.